0: Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Maxine Mackey also Label Sessions talks to Victor Milligan. Victor is a sustainability leader and a self-described storyteller, leading the charge in ESG and sustainability in a time where our world is facing disruption be it climate change, deglobalization, or AI, just to name a few. This fits Victor's lofty experience with over 15 years of management consulting and as a chief marketing officer. Victor is all for helping customers adapt to the disruption in operations while still driving business growth. Let's hear from Victor and Maxine. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today, Victor. Could you please introduce yourself to the Label Sessions audience?
1: I'm Victor Milligan. I'm currently a senior partner, managing partner of two different firms, one focused on marketing and marketing transformation, the other focused on sustainability. Um, Just as a quick background on myself, I grew up in management consulting at Booz Allen and Gartner, and then was a CMO for 15 years or so. I learned a lot about what makes companies grow, what makes companies change, and probably more to the point, how you do that simultaneously, because I think that's the challenge of today, it's both a, a, a commercial challenge of, of making the changes necessary to meet the market while driving growth and particularly on the sustainability side is how do you take on what is essentially an alien external driver of sustainability while you maintain your financial performance. And I think, so I think this essence of simultaneity will sort of pepper itself into this conversation but that hopefully is a quick and dirty about me.
0: We at Label Sessions see you very much as a kind of a, someone who's both a, change and transformation leader as much as you are and, and have been a marketer. Can you tell us a bit around what it's been like for you transforming some of the marketing functions you've led?
1: Yeah, I, I have a concept of this that I guess I'll lead with. I think I think change to me is three tiers, the head, the heart, and the feet. And I think, I think people sometimes misunderstand the, the, how they relate to each other. And so I think when people introduce change programs, for the most part, they make sense. So intellectually, people agree. So the head agrees. And then comes the more difficult challenge, which is: Do I do I believe in it? Does it emote, or you know, does it invoke a certain emotional attachment, an affinity, a belief system, a sense of purpose? And that's one piece. But the the piece that matters most is: Do I think I can prosper in that model? And I think a lot of at the individual level, a lot of people get stalled there. So I think what happens is much of the communications is about the head, do you agree with it intellectually? And so you can create a, a the false impression that everyone's along for the ride, but they're really not because they're not sure they themselves feel good or can prosper in that context. So change invariably deals with, at the individual level, the ability to, to understand the unknown, to figure out how you learn and have kind of like a confident curiosity, which is what, how does it work? What would it look like? What would it feel like? And But be confident in your ability to embrace the unknown. And I think a lot of the change programs stall out because there's there's this veneer of intellectual agreement, but it hasn't really translated itself into the feet moving. So the head, heart, and the feet is, when the feet move, that's when you get the traction and momentum. So I think a lot of change programs stall out at the heart level. And the question is how, as leaders, do you create a level of confident curiosity at the individual level so that they can, on their own way and in their own way, um, embrace and take on the change?
0: That's interesting. Just to kind of delve into that a bit more around, I guess, where it can go either way when it's a kind of a, in the, the, the heart. How important is it to help teams who are navigating change to be open? and stay open to change so that it translates both from the from the logical to the heart but also to the feet because i think that often there's um the plan for change and what actually happens are normally two different things because there's always plate spinning in any moment i'm curious around how teams what advice would you have around teams staying open to change because a lot of these practices don't happen overnight
1: yeah i guess i'll start with, with two pieces one is Change used to be, I'm going to go from point A to point B, and at point B, we're sort of done. And I don't think that's true anymore. I think the world spins too fast these days. Whether the comment is about now the the taking on the, the mandate of sustainability, whether it is trying to really understand how to capitalize on AI, how to deal with the different geopolitical realities that are in front of us, whatever they might be, I don't think the world offers a clean A to B move anymore, because I think it has more to do with being adaptive. So that change is the persistent and stillness is the exception. I think that's one part, getting people used to that mindset. So the other is that, and this is particularly true in marketing, I think the challenge with organizations is it tends to unintentionally focus on activities. And so when you ask people how you're doing, the most likely answer you'll get is I'm really busy. And I think the problem is, is the professional world is filled with, filled up with sort of unstated priorities or or priorities that really aren't priorities and they start to fill up time, well, change is an inherently inefficient art. It requires time and space. And if as leaders, you don't give people time and space, you're simply just one more item in, you know, a bunch of activities that they're taking on. And so I, I think the first thing is before you take on anything that's, you know, rises up to the occasion of being big enough in terms of change, the first thing you need to do is look at the plate of food that's in front of people to say, how can I clear up about 25 to 40% of it by just removing those things that don't really produce value, but certainly eat up a lot of time. And I think it also has the net effect of, of giving them a sense of importance that their, their resources, their time, their talent, their skill is so worth it that we're applying it to larger issues versus something them with a set of activities that sort of keep them busy, but may or may not sort of really lead to the success of the firm or to the success of them.
0: Let me ask you something around the adaptiveness, because I have a sense that there's gonna be discomfort at times. Um, And do you have any thoughts on how leaders and teams and people can use their discomfort for growth but avoid making kind of a, their team um, or themselves lack confidence, which can, which can often happen in, 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 in change activities. So it's, I think there's this tension between being uncomfortable with something, but not getting to feeling not confident and not able.
1: Um, a couple of things come to mind. One is, is that I think there's this, there's this focus on the concept of failing is good. And that's true because failure is inevitable. It happens to everybody. But I think this, there's a skill in learning from failure and that is a skill. There's tools and techniques that are there for people and I think you have to give them the tools and techniques of it didn't go well, what what do we learn from it and what do we take from it and and how do we lessen the rate of failure going forward is one. Because I think failure is natural but I, I don't know if people know how to overcome it or, or address it. And I, I think the other one is the idea that with adaptiveness, there's there's this level of uncertainty that comes with everything. And so I often will draw a simple bar chart and say, you know, when you're early in your career, you know, the about 70% of what you do for you has a high level of certainty associated with it. You're given a task, you're typically led, you're managed, there's a project, you know, there's a lot of things that are made clear for you. And about 30% is uncertain. As you progress in your career, you flip that at best, which is 70% begins to be uncertain and 30% begins to be certain. What are the tools and techniques of dealing with uncertainty? Because it's the, again, it's a constant. And I think there's a sense sometimes I get in marketing that uncertainty is bad, uncertainty is risk. And I think the flip is uncertainty is opportunity. Uncertainty is the opportunity to put my fingerprints on something so that I can build a way to plow through that and giving people a sense of empowerment and capability and giving them, again, the sense of confidence, curiosity, because uncertainty means you have to be sort of curious about what, what is it I'm actually looking at? What, what are the underlying you know considerations associated with it? So I think there's a lot of embracing uncertainty as opportunity, not as risk.
0: Does that take a lot of trust then in this kind of embracing uncertainty? Because um, I'm curious how important it is to cultivate trust in working relationships, to manage some of those kind of uncertainties with the opportunity of kind of putting your spin on something. Critical, critical. How can leaders cultivate trust in their teams?
1: I think one is, is that there are sometimes this belief system that leaders don't face off against uncertainty or they're inherently confident about it. That's not true. I just think we 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 just sort of plow on. And I think it's probably good for leaders to walk people through their process of how they engage uncertainty, where and how they feel vulnerable, where they feel like, you know, for example, I have pretty prominent blind spots. I know what they are. And I try to share with my team is, hey, I'm good at these things, but I'm, I'm okay at those things. But those things, man, I, I need someone else over here and I think the idea that a team embraces uncertainty that way and trust is based upon somewhat of your your ability to say, I'm really this person and that's a good thing, but not really that person. And so how do teams come together so that they create a bond of both sort of complementary skills, they celebrate the true diversity of the team that is now in front of them. And with that, they're sharing both their strengths and weaknesses at any moment in time. And I think that helps. The last is, I think, I think for some, there's this focus on personal risk, meaning if I do this, I will face risk. And I think leaders have to introduce the concept of business risk and say that business risk in the professional context can be larger than personal risk, meaning if we as a team don't accomplish this, the business may not grow kind of thing. Well, that's maybe larger in a professional context than if I make a mistake on Tuesday. And so you, you want to do is give a sense of calibration to personal risk. That it's, again, it's a constant. It's not as big as people think it is, but you want to give them a sense of what the what's at stake in terms of the business so that they have a sense of knowledge of it, but they also have a deep sense of ownership of it. And I think people will take far greater risk if they believe they're conquering something important kind of thing, and I think those things together sort of Create a level of camaraderie, a level of honesty, a level of openness, a level of humor, because some people's strengths and weaknesses at commentary are f- sort of funny when they come together. And I think that tends to kind of breed a level of trust within the team.
0: How did you find the shift from being a senior partner at Gartner and CMO at Forrester to kind of a, with your background in the c- consulting space and then moving to the startup world? What was that like for you?
1: Uh, boy, what a great question. Um, I th- so I grew up at Booz Allen to Gartner and both are formidable, really well-structured, really well-run firms. So although I did fairly well there, I have to accept the idea that much of the reason I did well is because the system around me was really capable and, and potent. And you go to a startup and there's just nothing there, right? And I learned a lot in one of my endeavors in, at Booz Allen, we were doing work in Cairo with a, with a telco and we we're doing work in the US as well. And, and, and you, you sort of lose the infrastructure when we went to Cairo. You had to start from the ground. And starting from the ground and actually asking the basic questions of things, how does it really work? What, what thing drives what outcome at a really basic level is something that when you're as a cognitive machine, you often are not asked to do. But as a startup, that's your primary role in life is to figure out what really creates value here. And so I think what I loved about it was the pace of the work was quite fast. You had a sense of ruthless prioritization. You simply didn't have the time or resources to do a lot of things. So you really learned the art of what what really creates value and what appears to create value, but doesn't. It's just familiar. So it's comfortable. I will say that I I did a startup before Forrester and there was a concept I had in my head at a startup is that when you thought of time, you looked at your watch. And, And in other large companies, when you think of time, you look at a calendar. And I think the idea that if you can keep the ingenuity and pace of a startup and bring it into a structured entity, you really have sort of both the best of both worlds. You have an infrastructure, but you also create that pace. And I still think that the concept of ruthless prioritization is so central. We talked about earlier as related to change. If you fill people's day up with things that don't matter, one, they get tired, two, they know it. And and it's really incumbent upon you to make sure that the things that you're delegating, the things that you value are valuable and that they know that. So they, they know that they're contributing the thing that matters most to them. I learned a lot in the startup about every day was a not a blank sheet of paper but you had to treat it a bit like a blank sheet of paper
0: did you speak to your experience i think now i understand it that you you help a lot of the companies you work with get the basics right with their go-to-market engines and really help them and focusing on growth and maximizing their, their performance we've talked a bit around ruthless prioritization i'm curious what advice you give to leaders who have to prioritize these finite resources and how do you help them find the levers that kind of a uh, matter the most to their targets?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the commercial model because I have a, a deep conviction about this is that I think that especially in the b2 b world, I think the the marketing model to me is somewhat broken. and I think it's somewhat broken because y- you have kind of a marketing tribe that talks marketing speak. And then there's the sales folks and they're sort of over there and there's product and that's sort of over there and finance is sort of over there. And the truth is you're all on the same team. And I think one way to solve for the, you know, how you do collect resources so you get more done with fewer resources is you think of your tribe as the broadest sense of tribe. You're part of the company. And how do I pull the commercial resources irrespective of where they come from together so that I don't have my tribe. And then there's this silo over there called their tribe or, or whatever it might be. And we use the word alignment, which really sort of knits the tribes together. Then my deep belief system and what I've seen is that if you actually alter it so that you have a commercial team composed of marketing talent and with sales talent, and you bring these combination of skills together, I think it's far more efficient. It's very different. It's immensely productive. And I think, you know, this whole concept of growth marketing to me is a nod to a commercial model where you have a, a more integrated commercial team and you have less sort of tribal instincts of people. And if you, if you look at the B2B language, there's this sort of forever meme about it, which is why is marketing being asked to prove its value? And I, and I think it goes to cause and effect, which is the causes the marketing activity. But you know, if I look at it from a CFO's perspective. They don't understand the marketing lingo, so they don't really understand the cause. The effect is the PL, and most marketers don't really understand the PL. And so, in a simple relationship of cause and effect, you have two parties that don't understand you know, both sides of that equation. I think marketing needs to take that step first to say, I want to know how the PL works and how I contribute to it, either, whether that's a revenue question or a margin question, whatever it might be. And I think bringing that commercial a more sort of a knitted version of a commercial team together, I think, to me is a far better way to go forward. And that's one way to look to your question. One way is to conserve energy but produce the best outcome.
0: You're someone that's also been an advocate and very passionate about the wider sustainability agenda for for some time, and you've you've just more formally launched Cambridge Advisors as well. Can you can you tell us a bit around um, this focus bringing? your world from change and transformation and marketing together with your passion?
1: Yeah, I love the question. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really thrilled about it. So I had the great opportunity working in a commodity intelligence business, and I learned a lot about what they were facing in terms of decarbonizing those environments, whether that was the steel industry, whether that was looking at agriculture, forest products, or in the renewable energy arena, and just the sheer scale and complexity that one was facing off for us to get to the other side of where humanity needs to get to. And I sort of did a lot of thinking about that. And I thought a little bit to your question about what my experiences have been on the business arena. And I go back to kind of how I led this off, which is, I I think there's an art of simultaneity, which is how do I do two things at the same time? And those two things are, how do I embrace a sustainability agenda? Which, for many companies, is alien, unfamiliar. It's not their core competency, and it was not really their plan. While I drive the financial performance of the firm, and I don't, I don't treat it as an either-or. But what happens if I think of it as both at the same time? And I felt like the the experiences I had lent itself to this problem, which is how do I, how do I think about the problem? As a both context, not at either or, and or one competing or trading off resources to the other. Um, you know, my, for me personally, I have a deep passion about the environment. I live in Vermont, um, and I think as a dad, it it really bothers me, it pains me to believe that we will leave this Earth to our children in a very different, lesser state. And I do think that the clock is ticking. I don't think we have an infinite amount of time. And if you think of time in a certain way, you know the the speed of an idea is instant. The speed of technology is fast, but the speed of organizations taking on change, as you and I talked about earlier, is slow. And I think that's that's really the topic at hand: is how do you create organizational speed of essentially an unfamiliar mandate? And I think that challenge is intriguing. I think my background lends itself to it. And I think more to the point is if you can solve it or solve pieces of it, you really do make a difference. And that's really the ambition of Cambridge. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast. For live sessions of advice,
0: mentoring or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. What advice would you give to leaders who are integrating sustainability into their strategy and operations? I'm curious because do you think that sustainability should be in a team of its own, like marketing? Or, because we've talked a bit around integrated teams. I'm curious where you think sustainability sits. Yeah,
1: that's a great question. I think that the, at onset, it's probably true that sustainability was sort of treated as other. You know, there was a chief sustainability officer, and it was it was sufficiently different. And there was a fear of disruption, disrupting the core operations, it was kept over there, sort of the appendage to the torso. Well, the problem is twofold. One is sustainability has political clout, but no real resource clout, and so it, and it has a bit of the same. Characteristics as digital transformation when companies brought in chief digital officers, which was high political context, high strategic meaning, but their resources weren't there. So it was always sort of separate from core operations. And the, to me, the only way this really works is when it's integrated into core operations, meaning into risk, into procurement, into marketing, into everything that somebody does. Because one, it's almost like sustainability by design in the same context as privacy by design. It's it's more efficient ultimately, but there's a you know, there's a growing pain associated with it. Sustainability gets instant scale and velocity. And the organization learns how sustainability can be accretive to its financial performance, its brand, and that type of thing. So you have this learning curve that's that's good about it, but again, will take some time. But I don't think sustainability will will ever really succeed. If it's parked off to the side, I think you he will you'll end up sort of doing what we've seen to date, which is a lot of people using words but not you know not creating the deeds behind it. Um, and I think that's really the going back to the commercial point. I think that's the real challenge: is how does someone gracefully integrate sustainability into the operations, recognizing there's going to be a level of disruption. Well, how do you contain it? And how do you use that disruption maybe as, as an incubation of new ideas? Because you're learning a lot about what could create value or what happened along the
0: way. I think that reflection on sustainability being kind of a high value, high impact, but often uh, poorly resourced. It's a bit similar to a lot of innovation agendas. People want to do it, want to be a part of it. But if it's not resourced in an organization, it's really hard to make change happen. Let me ask you this: It's more of a reflection, I guess. Um, I see a lot of communication in the media that challenges business and enterprises for sometimes actually being a part of and driving an ESG. Some people say it's not a business's place to do that, and I don't personally kind of uh, b- believe that. And for me, this whole this that that mindset really doesn't make sense for me because businesses have had purpose and mission, like for. You know, for, for for years, this is not something new to have a purpose and mission. And it's interesting how some of the language in the media around sustainability seems to kind of a cause these little kind of a bits of a microaggression and tension. Whereas I think that having a purpose isn't new. Like I don't know if if that resonates with you at it all. It
1: does. I I think one. I think sustainability has the concept of all behind it. It's all. It's governments. It's it's NGOs, it's corporations, it's individuals. I think all of us have to participate at some level for us to to meet the moment. So companies play a role, but they don't play the role. And I think that there there can be a level of empathy because you're you're coming out of COVID, you're coming out of inflationary pressures, an uncertain economy. Those are not easy things to to deal with. And then you add sustainability on top of it. So I think there's an empathy to leadership of i don't think there's an inherent rigid resistance to it i think it goes to how am i going to do this because i have all the other things i have to go do that are also part of my my legacy you know my legacy as a leader and so i, I think one i think the temperature in the marketplace to me is okay because i think it reflects people's real anxiety about what does it mean to face off against climate change. I think it's actually a reflection of reality. But I think you have to go to the next part of the sentence saying, up to date, it has been kind of an imperfect way to respond to a crisis. But going forward, what are the small big things? Meaning there may be small uses of resources, but they produce big outcomes where those big outcomes are learning so people can capitalize on those learnings or actual real outcomes. And get it so that you build. Stepping, taking a step back, one of the most fascinating dynamics that I that I came upon in sustainability was this sort of sense that there's this community. So, you know, we're a title of company, um, and we reached out to a number of people. Well, those people could not have been more generous. They the message back to us was, "We all have to succeed. So whatever I can do to help you out." And I think that sense of together, if you ran into the global context, is really central because I think everyone has a role to play, but no one has the role to play. And and I think, again, going back to my issue of operational integration, I think taking the first couple of steps is going to be hard. One of the messages that we're sending to, to the people we're speaking with is that I think a challenge is that in real ways, the risk that companies face off today is pretty modest. I mean, you don't really have, you have reputational harm done when people make egregious mistakes or overstatements. But for the average company, reputation is not really at stake yet. And reporting has been mostly voluntary. And I so your reporting is, is not really a comparable thing where my company can be compared to appear in the public arena based upon a set of standards. By 2025, that all changes. And all of a sudden, I have public scrutiny and public comparability of me as a company, and that that invokes me as a leader. And I have real reputational movement now because there's now scrutiny. I do believe that you you have this problem of consumers having deep sentiment about it but not changing their buying habits. Once that begins to turn, it turns fast. So I think the risk profile in 25 and beyond is vastly different than it is today. And I think what we're trying to talk to our are the folks we're talking to is think about 25 and beyond right now and invest in that. Don't invest in today's world, which generally has a level of modest risk associated with it, if you will.
0: Do you have any advice that you would give to leaders thinking, bringing a world of kind of marketing and sustainability together? Do you have any advice for leaders integrating ESG Comp in their communications?
1: Yes. I think that social media has taught everyone that life can be lived in small segments of time, 30 seconds, 60 seconds a day, or a news cycle. And I think that there's been too much attention on winning these small tactical things, whether that's a news cycle. The problem is, is that, that the world will look at this as a larger narrative. And my, my biggest comment is don't try to win a new cycle. Go to a level of productive transparency, meaning inform your stakeholders that this is not easy. Inform your stakeholders what your true ambition is. Bring them along for the ride in the same way we talked about trust and bringing teams along for the ride because that's our level of change management. But I think moving away from sort of a promotional tactical set of wins or you know, backtracks into a more strategic sense of productive transparency. That's what I would really recommend, and I think it's a very different. It's a very different creation of a dialogue that I think moves marketing out of a promotional context and much more into a problem-solving context.
0: And what I hear from a lot of the, the some of your reflections, Victor, is the importance of trust. So it's trust in sharing the process, the trust in teams to do the right thing and be empowered. It's I think. It's been great to really hear that, and and I think sometimes we just need that kind of a reminder of how important that is, so that it encourages us to kind of make the right decisions too in in moments that we face.
1: Yeah, a, a first step in trust is empathy, and a a first step in empathy is is transparency. Words, you you can't really empathize with me if I don't give you any access to real information, and so. There, there is a leap of faith here that if I bring to, let's say, my stakeholders the reality of where I really am, what I'm really facing, what I really think is plausible or possible, that's a bit of a risky position at some level, right? Before where I would just sort of put the best foot forward on it. And I think, but you have to follow those steps because to your point, trust is currency. And if I build that currency, I have simplified my world. I have moved from skepticism to sort of empathy, and in some cases I might even get to advocacy. And if I can get there, that's a I now have a force multiplier because my stakeholders are now advocates they're working on behalf of. They will honestly give us their feedback, their ideas, their innovations. and I've, I've really changed the calculus of how to move forward. and I think I think for on the communication side to your question, I think that's a real ambition. That's a real goal to, to achieve.
0: Okay, let's switch things up. We're gonna to move to the quick fire round. Okay. Um If I had a drum roll machine, I would be pressing that right now, but I don't.
1: Listen, it makes you feel good. I, I have two cats that I that I place into the porch because they tend to walk on the keyboard and there's they're actually pounding on the window. They got, right the, now. Memo. They got so the memo. It, it, it got, it, yeah, they got the memo. Yeah, they got so I got a drum roll in the exactly.
0: back. Exactly. <laughs> actually, you think you have two like domestic cats, but you've got two hike cats. Anyway. Sorry. Where do you go? I'm going to tell them that because that's going to make them feel good about themselves. Sure, I'm sure they get a sense of it from your, from your body language. It's a compliment, kitties. Um, tell me, where do you go for inspiration and to feed your creative brain?
1: Nature is amazing. It is, it is so nuanced. It is so clever. It is so creative. It is so fierce. It's it's just it's just an amazing place to to learn and to find out how things really can occur.
0: And what title would you give your biopic or autobiography in life and in career? Like, what would it be?
1: I like Curious Storyteller because my dad taught me to be eternally curious. Um, He also told amazing stories. And I think, you know, stories is the way humans work with each other. We've been telling stories since it all began. And I think stories also bring people along for the ride. So curious in context of learning and always be learning. And stories because that's the narrative that allows people to feel important, take on change, take on risk, that type of thing. What
0: a legacy. Last three books you read, or it could be something that you watched on TV. Were they any good? tellers?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I reread What is the What? I think it's just a, a beautiful book. It talks about the triumph of a soul. It's just so brutally honest. Um, I've been... I don't remember the last couple of books I read beyond that. That's a toughie.
0: Might be something you watched on TV. I'm actually
1: looking at one. No, I, I'm reading I'm looking at the other one. And so this is a bit of a non sequitur, but it's a book called I Eat Poop. And it's a book about a dung beetle. Not expecting that. And and the the dung beetle, I, I created a character of a dung beetle called Scoop. Uh this is not my book. And um I just find it really fascinating because a dung beetle, from an existential standpoint, must be asking a lot of questions about why, how, that type of thing, and it and it sort of meanders through this world, sort of trying to understand in sort of a disadvantaged way, and then ultimately feels immense value about himself or herself, and I just think it's a great story. It Reminds me of of anyone taking on a journey, and it's a it just is a book my my wife gave me, and the other is my son just put out another album, and in it he shared his vulnerability his past in a way that was starkly courageous
0: what advice would you give to your younger self and would they be surprised by their future
1: they would be surprised i would say relax that you don't have to win every moment that in some cases just allowing the moment to be it is sufficient and the other is is that trust that the people around you actually want you to succeed. You know, you have. there's more generosity in the world than can meet the eye. And I think you can You know, often misunderstand that. And if you believe that to be true, I think you forge coalitions differently and better and faster. And I wish I had known that as a kid.
0: Last question. And it's something that, that we ask everybody. On a scale of one to 10, Victor, how weird are you?
1: Well, it depends what you're measuring. I can go, I can go to a, a spinal tap 11 in an awful hurry. So I, I write, I, I try to write music. I try to, you know, I just talked about a dung beetle. Uh, I think there's a part of me that loves that creative part because it, it expresses the humanity of all things. And I think for that, I, I love the non sequitur, the whole banter, the whole bit in a professional sense, probably a six, I think I tend to see problems maybe differently than others. And I tend to reject the status quo faster than others. So I tend to be, I tend to see the other faster. And I think, you know, that could be a good thing and a bad thing. Well,
0: I think that's a a good place to wrap up for today. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you. It was a lovely conversation. I really appreciate it. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.